Hello, everyone. Welcome to This Must Be the Place, the Building Science Podcast. I'm your host, Shauna Henderson. Each episode is a deep conversation with a carefully chosen peer about not just houses, but place. Yeah, of course we talk about houses and retrofits, but we also want to change the industry for the better, forever. Energy poverty, community engagement, industry disruption, societal responsibility, and climate change. It's all here and so much more. Welcome back to This Must Be The Place, the Building Science Podcast. I'm your host, Shauna Henderson. My guest today is Doug Terry, an award-winning home builder in Southern Ontario. Doug's built more net-zero labeled homes than any other builder in Canada. He's currently writing a book that will serve as a guide for home builders. We will talk about that and so much more. Welcome, Doug. Thanks for joining me today. How are you? Shauna, it's great to see you, and I'm really glad to be here. Yeah, yeah, it's been a while. We were just... uh, Reminiscing, I think it's been at least... Yeah, probably two years. Two years. Were you at the Net Zero Summit? In, no, uh, I, I wasn't. I was away on holiday when that happened. Right. So it would have been spring training a couple yeah. years ago. Yeah. Spring training a couple of years ago. <gasps> so, yeah, yeah. No kidding. It'd be nice to be able to, to be in, in, in person again soon. Yes. Yeah. So, I, always, I always enjoy the spring training sessions. It's, it's uh, great to have the camaraderie of like-minded souls that are thinking about how to do a better job. Yeah, I guess I get so charged up with all the passion and and uh, and the uh, the excitement that that everybody around us has. I mean, that's what what happens when you get all the keeners in one room, right? Yeah, they just go like, "Hey, we're all keeners. We can talk about all the crazy, insane stuff that's in our heads and yeah, and all the minutia." <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, for any listeners wanting to know about this, just pop me a message, and I will put you in touch with the folks who host spring training. So, Doug, let's start off with what Doug Terry Homes offers their clients. Uh, well, we've been building net zero, net zero homes for several years now. And so basically everything we build, its minimum standard is, is net zero, although we do still brand the Energy Star because we find that, that that attracts a lot of the clients in our area. And then we're able to explain to them a little bit more about what the net zero is. Um, we try and build it affordably. Uh, we've done a lot of work on leading out our processes in order to keep our costs down. And to date, so far, we've built m- more net zero ready homes under the CHBA's uh, labeling program than any other builder. So that's kind of cool for a little little team from southern Ontario, right? Yeah, go you. I mean, really, it's fantastic. And I know that you have been able to be in a lot of different places talking about um, the issues that have come up and the unintended consequences that you, you, we all need to avoid when we hit those, uh, those net zero marks. So we'll talk about that in a, in a little bit. That's a really nice segue into your book, which is called From Bleeding Edge to Leading Edge. Yeah, yeah. And a, this builder's is a, a Builder's Guide. A Builder's Guide to Net Zero Homes. Right, yeah. and so this is to understand the why behind net zero and also the things that we're getting wrong? Yeah, so it's, it is more of a philosophy book. I mean, there's some technical stuff in it, but it's a series of stories that help people to relate to the different parts of the build process that they're, they're looking at to help more builders to be able to understand net zero and what it means. 
But it's also a fairly deep dive on, I don't think we're looking at the right thing. I think that when mm-hmm. we concentrate on, on net zero as being net zero energy, we're, we're really looking at a symptom and not like the root cause of what we should be going after. So it, it exposes that there's, there's two fundamentals that Dow must get right. The first one is, is you have to have a proper water management plan. The second one is okay. you've got to have a really great air tightness plan and don't do anything else until you figured those two out. And then we helped people with that. Once you've got that done, then it looks at what I consider the four principles of modern design, which is what's your carbon reduction strategy inclusive of the building's materials. So whole life cycle carbon strategy Mm -hmm. reduction. Uh, The second one is what's your indoor air quality uh, piece, because we have to really think about what we're putting on our walls now and in our homes, especially with people spending more time in tighter homes. The third one is climate resilient construction, because the first part is actually the insurance policy. The climate resilient construction piece says the horse is out of the barn, the barn's burnt down and we got a deal. And then the fourth one is we should probably consider occupant comfort. If you look at all four of those principles together holistically, then you'll build a building that on its own can pretty much withstand being knocked off grid for 36 hours at a time right. without it having a, a, a massive uh, loss of life or, or loss of the building. So it's right. it's a, just a different way of looking at things. Well, I think it's really it's really indicative of where we need to go. And, and I would just jump back into your four guidelines. And it seems to me that if you hit those first three, you're pretty much guaranteed that you hit number four. Almost. Almost. Um, there, there's there's some really critical issues with regards to windows that, that a lot of builders are getting wrong. And mm-hmm. we have to look in high performance homes to look at low solar glass in our windows. It's not good enough to just put triple glazed in if they're high solar gain. That's what gets us into trouble in the summertime mm-hmm. if we mm-hmm. lose energy because then we can't keep the building under control. Right. But if we use the right glazing on our windows, a low solar glass, and I always recommend under 0.3 or even better under 0.25, you're going to have better overall performance and a greater occupant comfort. So that's where there is the added need to look at uh, getting to that fourth one. Yeah. Yeah. No, I like that. Very simple. Four things. Very clear. I mean, there's lots of details under each of those, those headings, but what we'll get there. And I, I I totally agree with you that energy is the, uh, is, is not the right metric to be using here. I think we need to look at a bigger, broader picture. And that's been, I've been banging on that drum for, hmm. A long time now. Long time. Well, we've talked about it before. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit more about it. Like, so expand on the idea that that this is that energy is the wrong thing to be focused on. Well, the the first thing is, is if you just look at energy, then you could actually have a larger carbon footprint than than you should, and you might be better off to just build a code built home because if you're using the wrong types of insulations, as an example you could end up blowing up your carbon footprint. Another example would be when we start to look at what's happening with the step code and the greater insulation values, well, you may end up having, depending on the type of wall assembly you're doing, you may end up having to increase your your foundation width, which is increasing the carbon footprint because the biggest Mm -hmm. culprit in, in the carbon footprint of a house is the concrete, specifically a home that's got a basement and has a lot of concrete in it. So you have to do an awful lot of things to offset that. Um, so we're now looking at, okay, well, how do we reduce our carbon footprint of our actual concrete, which is the biggest culprit? But we have to look at the steel in the buildings. We have to look at the insulation values. We have to look at the veneers. But if you look at those big hitters and get those to come down, then you're really getting into a situation where you can start to reduce your carbon footprint. Uh, things like blown cellulose insulation are great because they're something that grows. And, mm-hmm. and really, the, the, the very quick rule of thumb on carbon reduction is 
if it grows and you sequester it into the building, you're doing a good job of reducing your carbon footprint. If it's mined and has to be uh, fabricated or, or gone through a mill or, or what have you, uh, you're increasing your carbon footprint. So if you want to just have a very basic rule of thumb on the carbon footprint piece, then that, that would be it. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, moving on, if you want to talk about indoor air quality, well, we, we, you know, I represent Graffenstone here in Canada because I'm really concerned, not just about having a zero VOC paint. It's about in Canada and North America specifically overall that you can have a zero VOC paint and it still has a high amount of VOCs because the numbers are fairly high in North America and it's still permitted to have formaldehyde and another chemical called MI as preservative in it. And people that are asthma exposed or allergy exposed, if they have allergens against this, it's very toxic mm-hmm. to them and can be deadly. And nobody can see this, but I am putting my hand up as an asthmatic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can't. I can't even be in the house when if anybody's painting. I've got. I'm out for a week. I'm. I can't be in. Um, so wouldn't it be better to just back. have a paint that you could yeah. use in it? Yeah, like that. Yeah, we'll right. we'll talk after. <laughs> Um, but I just wanted to jump back and say VOCs are volatile organic comp- compounds, and that's basically if you can smell something, for example, a perfume or a cologne or a scent, you are smelling a VOC. So even yeah, so, you know orange peel, anything, it's a VOC. Volatile, it comes off, it expands into the air, you know, it it uh, disperses into the air, and you can smell it. So orange, orange peel, like the oil from the orange, the aerosols, as you're peeling the orange, it, 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 that's a nice smell and it's mm-hmm. fairly inert, right? But when you start talking about, say, the little plug-in fresheners, yeah. those are really, really bad for you. They are all VOCs. Yes. So we have to understand that that's what the mechanism is. So we have to educate our consumers to like, well, mm-hmm. I want some VOCs. No, no, you really don't. Mm-hmm. No, get them out of your house. If you're if you're <laughs> yeah. masking a smell, go find out what's causing the smell and fix that. It's a little bit challenging. Ah, here's something for you. Here's a it's it. I was in BC last month, and I was visiting with some friends who live in Chilliwack, um, and Chilliwack is a great farming community and. As you can tell when you hit Chilliwack or the environs, because it really smells like a lot of cows, an awful lot of cows. So the house I was in, um, they had there were air fresheners in the house, yeah. and um, so when we have things like general oh de cow out there, or if we have wild uh, fire smoke, and they're you know people are smelling things that are coming from the outside in. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we need to, we also need to talk about those situations where we do need to have some kind of filtration device um, sure. to help the whole house, not just mask those, those smells. So when, when we look at filtration, obviously it's important that you have fresh air. And I always ask customers when I get a chance to talk to them, well, when would you like fresh air? And the answer really should be all the time. There are certain incidences where you, you may have to have your windows closed more than you'd want. And that's where ventilation with the ability to clear or clean the air is very important. So, you know, looking at, say, a MERV 13 filter or higher would be a good thing to do in that circumstance. But you don't want to build a giant plastic bag, put people into it, and then say, okay, now turn off your fresh air machine. You don't right. you don't need fresh air for, like, six weeks. That's that's not healthy living, right? Yeah. So yeah. We, we, have to, we have to look at a good ventilation strategy, and then we have to look at how we're going to clear or clean mm-hmm. that air. Yeah. Yeah, so I'm going to jump into this very cool thing that I have been 
I'm actually building out for a series of, of live classes that I'm doing in the next couple of weeks, which is a, what's a, being called a Corsi Rosenthal, Rosenthal box. Have you heard of these? So it's actually a way to, instead of spending a few hundred dollars on a HEPA filter, if you don't have um, a furnace system or if you want to have something within the room to clear the room, it's, this is specifically about um, reducing viral load for COVID in classrooms, but it works for houses too. So it's another very cool thing where you basically take a box fan yeah. and you take three, no, four, sorry, one, two, three, four MERV 13 filters and you create a cube on the outside of that and, and then run that. And so, um, yeah, I'm building one this week and then I'm having my students build one um, in the program or several in the program. We're going to donate yeah. them to some schools yeah. in the area. But that's also, you know, people, it's a little off the topic of having a house that will do it for you. But I'm really looking at, you know, in terms of resiliency, how do we look at helping people help themselves so these are this is you know i'm really promoting this with folks i'm working with is this is another way you can help yourself well we have to keep in mind that there's like what 99.9 percent of the housing stock is already here Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. there's a whole lot of people that do need that help and there's zero zero educational stuff that's really accurate on it and and quite honestly most of the times when i'm hearing some of these claims it's like if it's too good to be true it is is. be really careful right yeah but that that's uh that box you're talking about i have heard of it and it's a really cool solution yeah yeah well there's a bunch of folks who've been really hot and heavy on it doing a lot of uh you know they need to be at spring camp because we can all nerd out on this together (laughs) in terms of uh, testing and tweaking it and making sure that the airflow is not impeded so you're not blowing through the fan too fast, um, you're not, you know, um, that you're actually moving air, that there's an, uh, the particulate matter, you know, reduction and stuff like this. So there's a lot of really cool science that's actually happening in real time in the real world, um, which ties all the way back into what we're talking about in terms of building science. What we want to do is keep people safe, keep them healthy. So and so tying back into the self-help and all of the, uh, you know, helping people understand what to do with housing and how to do it in a, in a not just a code specific way, but in a way that is actually healthy and um, and creates safe environments for people. You are working on some very interesting projects and have worked on some very interesting projects for the past yeah. few years. So I want to hear about your hope projects. Oh, okay. Yeah, let's go. These are so fantastic. So uh, back in 2017, it was actually the year after uh, a gentleman I knew that was a building inspector. He passed away from cancer and uh, it really devastated the family. They they had an issue with their insurance. He had a little six-year-old boy and a two-year-old girl and, uh, and they were in pretty dire straits. And it was at the same time I was going through a personal depression and uh, and and so I'm I'm walking through the the line of the visitation, and the family was thanking me. We'd made a donation to help the family out, and I'm like, well, I don't, I don't think I'm done yet. And I'm standing right in front of of, of Johnny and his widow, and it's like he put his hand on me and he said, "Dude, if you help my wife and my family, then it's going to help you." And in a flash, it was like, "We're gonna we're gonna build a net zero ready home, and we're gonna do it in three days or less." And so it took us nine months to plan it, and. Uh, 
and we brought in uh, an international film crew. We had actually eight, eight cameramen, and at one point we had 13 cameras going. And we built that thing, and uh, 39 hours is when we did the blower door test at 0.63 air changes, right? Yeah. And so now the film is actually out in the film festival circuit. It uh, was a finalist, actually, at one in Sweden, which was really crazy. It won the Honoros uh, Festival in New York City for uh, the monthly festival uh, best documentary short, and it's showing up at a whole bunch of other film festivals. So really, really cool. So exciting. It's, uh, it, it's, a, it's a hell of a story because it's, it's, it's about – um, you know, death and cancer and radon and net zero and preserving our planet and, you know, the struggles that people have in depression mm-hmm. and, and working your way through that to come to the other side and say, you know, hope, hope is a really powerful thing. If we all work together, we can accomplish wonderful things. And it's, it's, so it's so, a really strong message. Yeah. It's amazing. And so brave and courageous of you to just step out there and say, here's what I'm doing and here's why. Yeah. Next up, let's talk about Agovida. Aguavita. So we went to Puerto Rico after Hurricane Maria and saw the absolute destruction down there. Uh, we were down within about 100 days of the hurricane, and the village that we were going to help was uh, San Lorenzo. Uh, and so it's it's a little small village. It's up in the mountains. And the bridge across the river to get to the to the village was wiped out by the by the hurricane, and so you had to drive through the river in order to get to the village for the first two trips I went on down there. Uh, and when the first two trips, we were literally driving across the the hydro wires that were all destroyed in the in the hurricane. So there was no electricity in the village. We did everything by by solar, uh, battery backup, that sort of thing, or in some cases generators. And uh, we went down there on three build missions. So I did a total of four missions, a scoping mission, three building build missions. And we built uh, multiple roofs, repaired like multiple roofs. And we actually built one house while we were down there as well. So uh, pretty crazy, uh, great people. It was a, an incredible experience. We had to be very careful, though, especially in the May mission, because it was so hot to get the guys off the roof. And we had uh, the, the logistics team. They're they're running all over the island trying to find product for us. It was very difficult, even though they had Home Depots getting the product and materials and that sort of thing. Uh, but their most important job was ice cold beer at three o'clock for the team because everybody was just done by yeah. three o'clock. I don't even remember what the beer tasted like. It went down so fast, right? <laughs> uh, but you were sick of water by that point in the day, yeah. right? Because you're just pounding the water and the Gatorade and that sort of thing. But uh, it was it was great fun and a, an incredible learning experience about wind loads. And we took a lot of those results and we brought them back here to Canada and we worked on a program with Institute for Catastrophic Loss Reduction, ICLR, and Western University because uh, Sarah Stevenson from Western was one of our one of our team members on two of the missions. And we've come up with a, a program for wind resistance to keep roofs on in an EF2 tornado, which about 90, 98% of all tornadoes in, in Canada and about 95% in North America and in the whole are EF2 or less. So it's it's just really important. And, you know, when the, yeah. the tornado happened in Barrie there a few weeks back, uh, of course, we're getting the call about, well, hey, listen, we should look at this, right? It's like, yeah, we can mm-hmm. do it. Yeah, because you did, that, you did mm-hmm. some of that work that would have been a couple of years ago now. Yeah. You it presented was, uh, on it at some, yeah, some yeah. event that I remember yeah, in the before we, times. <laughs> Yeah, when we met in person and stuff like that. It's really about looking at the low-hanging fruit and what we can do mm-hmm. cost-effectively. And then now we're starting to look at, well, what would the renovation details be like? Because, you know, obviously mm-hmm. you can't necessarily 
get out everything with the walls enclosed and that sort of thing. But there are ways of at least getting the roof fastened on stronger. Mm-hmm. So we, we think that that's important because, again, the vast majority of homes are already standing, right? Yeah, yeah. And we've seen, you know, I mean, you, you only have to witness one, um, you know, a house disaster, like a roof pulling off or a wall collapsing or something to realize that that's, you know, you don't want to be anywhere near that. No. Which is a, probably the understatement of the day, but there you go. <laughs> when, when we were in Puerto Rico, the, the the folks were so excited about having these strong roofs being built. And they're actually for a hurricane uh, category four level, right? Mm-hmm. Three three to four is in the range we're at. But the joy on their face when the rain came down and they could they could hardly hear the rain because of the way we designed the roof. Normally it's just ten up there and it and it's mm-hmm. like a huge drum, right? But now mm-hmm. we had proper sheathing. We had. Uh, proper coverings over the sheathing. And then we had the tin to get the water away and then, you know, moving the water away from the building itself. Uh, the, the the feeling of safety that it provided them was just such an incredible reward. Yeah, I can imagine. And what was, was there a big jump for you in sort of moving from cold climate building science to hot? Not overly because they can't afford air conditioners. So we didn't really have to worry a whole heck of a lot about that part of it, but yeah, effectively, it'd be reversing um, how the, the humidity or air flows through the homes, wall systems. But it's not like they were insulating these things anyway, right? Um, they really are relying on on the ventilation coming down from the mountains, the, the, the slightly cooler air. But it it it, it gets kind of hot in there. Certainly, the, the roofs that we were putting on helped to keep the building cooler because when that ten, that tin heats up. And mm-hmm. it's just baking into the houses, so it, it made a big yeah. difference on those homes. Yeah, yeah. My experience with that would be it would would have been in barns. Yeah, same, same. Yeah, yeah. Very cool. Cool. So it's also looking when you do something like this, you're also looking at, um, you know, it's a good example of I'm going to use this term. It may not be the right one, but vernacular architecture. Like, what is what are people doing? What what do people build with? How do people build? Um, you know, if we can flip that and, and, and go from the hot climate to the very, uh, very cold climate, what we do in, in southern Canada doesn't work in northern Canada. So we need to have a very specific um, set of guidelines and rules and product to to offer to communities that are north of 60. So you know? we're we're working on what I hope to will be a new building program. Uh, it would be, I think, what's called the logical extension of, of say, a net zero building, because I think net zero falls short. Uh, and, and this is called life arc. And the idea is what happens when you're in an all-electric building and the hydro goes out for an extended period. And so we just had modeling done between ourselves and, and another builder uh, in, in a net zero uh, situation, both of us in net zero. And the, the other builder um, – they're building in a cold, cold environment where the energy uh, was lost. They ended up at about minus eight Celsius in their building after 36 hours. Hmm. Ours, ours dropped from 21 to 10 Celsius. And then on the extreme high heat, uh, their building went from 21 up to 41 Celsius, which is now you're starting to have people die in the building. And our, our building went to 30. So we were between nine and 10 degrees either side swing mm-hmm. of the comfort, but point. we were, yeah. we were just outside the comfort zone on the hot side and we were 
put a sweater on and you can survive on the cold side. And so that that's part of what we've now got to start looking at. And that's why mm-hmm. I, I, I really ask people to look at the four principles, because you've got to look at these things so that the buildings will survive and so will the occupants. Yeah. And that's universal. It doesn't matter where you're building. You have to adapt, but you have to consider the four principles. Cool. I love it. I love the, uh, you know, when you, when we, we t- start talking about those really big pictures and we, you know, you can, you can step back and see the whole thing and then, and then dive back in and say, we have enough understanding of these problems to really, you know, focus in like laser focus on these issues about windows, about ventilation and filtration. You know, that's where there's a level of finessing that is, is, um, is really needed. We can't just have this sort of, uh, you know, as far as I'm concerned, there's no, there's no silver bullet solution. So we no, need it's to- not, it's not one pant size fits all. Yeah. No, yeah. no. But you know, yeah. let's be honest. The biggest crisis that we've got in our northern communities is the fact that they don't have safe buildings and they mm-hmm. don't have clean drinking water, right? Yeah. And the clean drinking water is really it's an outrage. And there's there's no reason. I mean, there's a company in London, Ontario here called Purifix, and they have systems that are ideally designed to meet those types of needs. And they're not stupid expensive. I was actually looking at shipping one down to Puerto Rico. We were negotiating to, to bring that in because they didn't have clean drinking water on a regular basis in the village we were in. It was intermittent because they, mm-hmm. they kept, it, you know, the, the um, actual pumps in the system were old and they they weren't reliable, right? And this is something that fits in a shipping container. It's not huge. Right. And then shipping containers have all sorts of other interesting uses when you get them to the place. Yeah. Well in this particular case it was about keeping the the, the system safe. That's right? what the system system was in. So it basically lives in the system in that in the system. Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. Cool. cool. And it can pump pure water from turbid water. So you know there's really no reason to not have Pure, pure, clean drinking water, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So we've talked about decarbonization and electrification a bit, but let's take a little bit more of a deeper dive in there because you were talking about all electric houses and different your 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 um, your comparisons there. So talk a little bit more about the relationship between those two things. So right now we currently build as our standard uh, a dual fuel hybrid heating system. And I and I I have to make that distinction because a lot of people just say, well, it's a hybrid system. Well, well, no, it's not. A hybrid system would mean that you've got an air source heat pump and a furnace or other heat source that are able to be combined in order to provide your heating needs. So that makes it a hybrid system. Mm-hmm. Dual fuel says that your furnace is gas and then you've got the air source heat pump for your, your heating and also for your cooling. So we're, we're in what I call a transitional technology in that we're doing dual fuel hybrid systems. But right now what we're testing is going straight to a hybrid system, which would be, in our case, it's a Detson Supreme all-electric furnace with their air source heat pump technology combined together with the smart ducting. It's a fabulous system. It, it works really well. And the biggest reason why we're doing that in the short term is because we've got some townhomes coming up that we just we can't put gas in. The, mm-hmm. the loads are too low. So we have right, to and that's another big thing that 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 we need to address is when we get to into these net zero houses that there's nothing that's small enough to heat them. No, 
No, the loads yeah. are, well, I just told you, you know, yeah. 36 hours and it dropped to 11 degrees in 36 hours. Like that's right. pretty crazy, right? Yeah. So we're, we're, we're aware of this and we're working on solutions. And then, you know, everything we do, we then want to bring it back to the, the builder community and say, here's, here's a really good solution or don't do this. It didn't work very well. Mm-hmm. And that's another big part of the book is don't do this. It didn't work. Right. I wish I'd had this book when I was starting out. I am so excited <laughs> to hear about it. And it jumped. And ask, when is the book coming out? When I get it done. <laughs> Good answer. <laughs> Good answer. I'm down to seven sections. And the one I'm actually writing right now is about life arc. And uh, and, and so I, I tell a really fun story. There's a lot of stories in here and a lot of shares, right? Mm-hmm. But I tell a really fun story about uh, the big blizzard of 1978 that knocked, like, basically the, the whole this region offline for about four days and I was stuck at at my parents house with my probably was 15 so I didn't really have any other place to go my eldest brother uh, was there and I'm a granddad and so there was no no energy there you know we're cooking on a big fireplace in the basement that had you know the old fireplace types that had the the shelves on either side she put the pot on to cook on right so we literally cooked on that and kept ourselves warm and and survived this thing for the four odd days Uh, of course the sump pit goes out you know how that works and so Mm. we've got six inches of water on the floor my brother puts pallets down and we're walking across all the water to get there well it was several weeks after my dad's company christmas party and back in those days it was like you'd take the sub trades they'd all go down into a basement and they'd have liquor for about four hours and, and go home well so he had you know several bottles to a case of, of rum remaining and so my, my grandpa tom would say son give me another shot of that dr morgan for my stomach's sake right and uh, and so the two of them went at it pretty good. And, and by the five day mark, my dad's coming home and he's carrying all the luggage in and and, uh, you know, he's just like dog tired and glad to be home and kind of cranky. And Gramps says, son, the hound drank all your rum. <laughs> and so I tell stories like this. Preemptive just, strike from your grandpa. Oh, That's great. <laughs> no kidding. Throw, throw him completely under the bus. Well, what, what's that got to do with climate resiliency and a life arc? Because if my brother hadn't known what he was doing, we'd have probably been in real trouble, right? We were out in the middle of nowhere on the family farm, and there was, like, nothing around. So he, he kept us safe. Yeah. And uh, and how do you do that in an all-electric building? And so that's what we're exploring. Mm, cool. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's the biggest – That's the biggest. Uh, it's one of the big elephants in the room when we talk about electrification. Yeah. And that's – for here in, on the Atlantic coast, that is a big issue because we have had, like – uh Hurricane Juan took us out for 10 days, and then shortly after that, what we jokingly called White Juan took us out for another 10 days, but that was in the winter. Yeah. Um, and, you know, anywhere in Newfoundland Labrador, a big issue, if the yeah. power goes out, you're done. And so yeah. we really need yeah. to do these things to to protect um, homes and homeowners. And, you know, and then that also points to those who have less resiliency in general. So yes. those who are who are most um, most likely to have real problems are those who are living in in um, you know lower quality housing. Substandard housing, yeah. Substandard housing, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it's um, yeah, I'm very interested in your book, and I think that you know there's there's a lot that uh, that people are going to be able to get from from your experiences, and you're always so free and 
and willing to talk about, oops, I made a mistake and yeah, don't yeah, do yeah. this. I really, really, really appreciate that because there are so many times where people can get, get stuck in their egos and say, this is how it is. And, you know, yeah. one of the big things for me was many, several years ago, uh, heat pumps were being pushed hard in Nova Scotia, like yeah. really hard. And, you know, at that point, they were basically a glorified fan for an exterior, for a, a cold climate. I was like, it's not going to save you a lot of money. It's going to cause you a lot of grief here. Um, also, because a lot of houses here in Nova Scotia um, are not um, ducted because we do a lot of hydronic heating. Yeah. So to to have people bring a ducted system in and, you know, there's a lot of expense and a lot of, 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 uh, of technology that comes in, but then it actually didn't work very well. And I, and I pushed hard against that. And so there's got to be a better solution for yep. now because those things are for, for, for heating or for, sorry, for cooling climates, right? They're air, they were initially out of the Southeast and they were for air conditioning yep. and yep. you bring them up into these climates and they don't work, but they're being pushed hard and then, you know, when they we got to cold climate heat pumps, I was like, okay, now we're talking. Yeah. So, so change I, I, happens. You know, I, I I do like hydronic. In fact, our, our apartment buildings will be migrating towards them over the next couple of years as we get better at this. Um, because, you know, you're, you're taking free energy from the ground as opposed mm-hmm. to free energy from the air. Um, and, and that does start to solve some of the cooling loads a little bit as well, right? So mm-hmm. my concern is is that look, the climate's changing, and, and you know you, you want to be a climate designer, a desire, uh, denier, then, then then have at it. But you know the BC heat dome in six days killed half as many people as everybody that died in BC from the COVID up to that point yeah. in six days. Yeah. Right. We ever get a, a heat dome over top of Greenland, guys? We're all in serious trouble. We're done. Yeah. But but you know what? You getting a heat dome where you are is very, very plausible, right? It mm-hmm. just depends on where things are going. And I would expect that everything east of the Mississippi should count on having a lot more rain and high wind events because there's just so much energy in the Gulf of Mexico now. It's a lot yeah. warmer and it's not going to cool off unless something dramatic happens, which means we need to expect more of this and we need to build for it. So air conditioning, even in your climate, is going to start to become yeah important or cooling of the air at the very least is going to become important. Yeah. And, and really for us here, uh, even now cooling is becoming more interesting, but it's not because air conditioning or heat pumps are becoming more interesting. Let me say it that way. Not because we have super high temperatures, although this year was insane compared to others, but we have, you know, we have stretches of, you know, three, six, eight weeks of really high humidity. I was away, yeah. like I said, in BC this uh, over the end of August, to the beginning of September, and I came home and all the surfaces in my house were covered in mold. All yeah. of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And that's with people living in the house. Well, I shouldn't say all of them. There was a, there was some very significant areas, um, you know, a basement that has an exposed uh, concrete floor in my house. You know, I'm my house is always going to be the shoemaker's children version of of a person's house. <laughs> um, so I have an exposed concrete floor and it's not insulated. The house is built in 86. And so it is a mold generating device. It just that's what it does, and yeah. and it was really 
super humid here and nobody else in the house really knew what to do. Yeah. Um, there were other things going on. So the, hum- the dehumidifier didn't get emptied out and reset for a good portion of that time. And, you know, even just places where we've never had mold before ever yeah. covered. Yeah. Yeah. And that's so not healthy. Dehumidifica- yeah. And so dehumidification for pretty much everywhere east of the Mississippi, like you said, is is more of an issue and more of a concern yeah. than the cooling at this point. Granted, if, if, you're, if you're south of, you know, the, you know, it, it, moving past those, the mid or the, the mixed climate states, you're probably more interested in cooling. But anything north of that is all about dehumidification. I remember speaking with Andy Oding, uh, who I do a lot of work with, with building knowledge. Mm-hmm. Uh, Several years ago, um, I was complaining about just high humidity load events in the spring. And he's like, well, you should just open your windows because the outside air, you know, bringing into the home or whatever, run your, run your ERV more. And I'm like, Andy, you're not getting it. It's a high humidity event. I know it's weather is cool, but it's, it's overloading our systems, yeah. right? Oh, it can't be right. It can't be right. And then a couple of years later, he's like, you know what? I'm starting to hear from other builders the same thing. I'm like, am I right? That's what I'm telling you. Where we live, we're between two of the Great Lakes. We're kind of sandwiched in, in there. And it can it can get humid in the spring, and it can get mm-hmm. humid in the fall. Like right now today is really humid, and it's, you know, 17, 18 degrees. But it's not comfortable because it's it's just so humid. And we're getting more and more of that. So there's in our area, there's three different times where the humidity really climbs. One is spring, one is fall. That's your shorter seasons. Mm-hmm. And then there's typically about six weeks, late July to early September, somewhere in that range, where it can get high and just stay there. And then yeah. you'll get the, the heat load added to it, where it's high, high heat and high humidity, and it's just brutal, right? Yeah, yeah. So, and that's where we are. So, so today is, what, October uh, 12th. 12th, and it is 4 o'clock in the afternoon um, in Halifax. It's We're at 22 degrees Celsius, and it's 60% humidity. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. It, and, it's, and that's, that's decent. Um, yeah. You know, 70 to 90 is pretty, has been pretty common over the past few weeks. Bring that into the home and see what happens, right? Like you yeah. said, the mold factory. That's, that's where we're exploring some different dehumidification strategies. So the first one is, is obviously air conditioning in the summertime. If you've got high enough humid, humidity and heat mm-hmm. codes, that makes a difference. The second one is your ERV. I use ERVs, not HRVs, because ERVs will at least try and pull about half that humidity out of the home to keep it from coming into the home during the summer. So it's reducing the stress on the mm-hmm. system. Um, but then there could still be overloading events, especially in the spring and fall or super loading events in the summer where it's like, okay, well, you know, plug in a, a dehumidifier, set it at 50%, but pipe it directly to the drain. Mm-hmm. Don't be thinking you're going to remember to, to empty it because you won't do mm-hmm. it enough, right? Yeah. It's yeah. got to be set on constant. But, yeah. but there's also uh, Santa Fe is a great company out of the States, and they have whole home deunification system, including ones that fit right between two two by four studs, right? Oh, nice. So there's some really cool opportunities there, and I'm, I'm we're, we're exploring that with some of our homes because in some cases, especially with multiple families, multiple generation being in these homes nowadays, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it's getting harder and harder to control the humidity without dedicated uh, whole home dehumidification right. and that right. just needs to be part of the another one of the bullets in the gun right yeah yeah oh int- that's really interesting to hear about this uh, this you know systems like that um i mean i can see you know 
my work primarily here in Nova Scotia, we we tipped over to being more about renovations and less about new builds several years ago. So, you know, we have and we have ridiculously old housing stock and we have a lot of hydronic heating. So we have, you know, the layers of the perfect storm keep hitting me as as I go further into discussions with folks, you know, with the work that I'm doing and what I'm seeing. And then with you talking with you about what's going on with with uh, with the whole issue of climate and humidity. Man, we have a lot of work to do. We do. So we have to break it down into edible bits. And so in your specific climate, having a whole home dedicated dehumidification system is actually a really great solution to look at. And Mm -hmm. that's the nice thing about that is you you open up a stud wall, right, and you're able to fit one in. Don't have a stud wall? Box one out to house this thing, right? So there's really easy answers. And I'd for sure be firing one in the basements of these homes, but you might need two. You might need one on, say, the main floor as well. Yeah, and, I was thinking about that, and that's and that's that's different than a humidex. No, this this is dedicated dehumidification. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because yeah. what I'm what cool. I'm finding is, and it's not it's not again not universal. You have to look at your climate and your your area. Are you in a microclimate? When we're up and mm-hmm. talking to folks in Guelph. Uh, they don't have the same issues as bad as we do. They're actually worried about needing to add some moisture into the air in the wintertime. We're not there. We're worried 100% of the time about excess moisture in the air with our homes, Mm -hmm. right? So that becomes a really important strategy. But you have to look at your microclimate and and what's going on and understand, you know, what the loadings are. But there are solutions that are off the shelf at this point out there for almost all of this. It's just thinking it through and coming to the right answer. Well, I am going to check out the Santa Fe stuff and I'll get back to you on performance because I have all my little monitors in the house. Beautiful. Things going, oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll remind me and I'll get you Nikki Kruger's contact information. Okay. Now, there is cool. there is one uh, repped in by Brone here that I don't really know much about as well. But this, the Santa Fe guys, they're the experts in dehumidification. Cool. Cool. Well, I'll put it in my house and then it'll be a guinea pig. So I had one last question in my list here. Tell me about being a chef. Because huh. this is something that we have never talked about, and we need to because food is joy. I, I managed to pay my way through going to the Calgary Olympics by being a line cook for CP Hotels. I'm, I'm actually, my my true profession is I'm, I'm a chef. Everything else I've made up, I'm a total mm-hmm. fraud on everything else. I don't know why people are oh, listening. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I spent eight years in, in that as a career. Um, Probably one of my my regrets is that when my dad says, well, let me buy you Tim Hortons and you can run it. And I says, well, no, dad, I want to be a professional proper chef. And so I said, no, oops, I probably would have made a lot more money. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I I was uh, blessed with being able to go to, I worked at the Logican in Ascus for CP Hotels. Uh, it was indentured servitude, no doubt about it, mm-hmm. um, but a great time, and I uh, really, really enjoyed myself there. I was in uh, Grand Bend, uh, which is on Lake Huron, for about three years as the head chef there, and uh, met my wife at the, the Drawbridge Inn in Sarnia, where I was a chef for a couple of years, and so some pretty good memories. I still know my way around the kitchen. I'm actually mm-hmm. a lot more talented with knives than I am with uh, construction tools. Because when I was a kid and worked in construction, it was like the big dumb bull that would like, you know, swing a hammer and then move, lift 
walls because I was a big kid. Still, I'm right. built walls. That's but your, you fam- your, fam- your family has been in construction for oh, yeah. generations, yeah? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, my dad started the, the company in 1954. It's actually named after him, not me. I had no mm-hmm. choice in the matter. I was actually supposed to be Sean, and I was born on April, April 1st, 1964, and, and dad got to the register first, uh, and mom didn't talk to him for a couple of weeks because I was supposed to be Sean, and she was so mad at him. <laughs> yeah. So I could have been, you know, Sean uh, Terry, but I'm in fact Douglas John Terry, and so. I'm oh, Jr. he didn't even he he anglicized the Sean even cheeky. He he did well. He was Douglas Jack, and Jack and John are interchangeable. Yeah. So yeah, he was Douglas Jack on his birth certificate, but he went by Douglas Sean, and I'm Douglas John. So yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Good times, eh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had a, my my son is Jesse um, because my partner was interested in Sean. And I said, over my dead body, am I going to say, hi, I'm Shauna, and this is my son, Sean. But his stepmother and my grandmother were both called Jesse. And Jesse is a derivative of Sean, is an anglicized version of Sean. It gets really complicated. Anyway, there's a a link. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, (laughs) John, Sean, Jack. Yeah, they're all they're yeah. all different variations of the same name. Just depends on yeah. how far back the tree you go, right? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So I got one more quick story to share with you. If we got okay, a, perfect. We got a second, and so I do cover off a little bit about sales and marketing in the book as well because I want builders to kind of wrap their heads around thinking a little bit differently and filling the schedule mm-hmm, and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Yep. So I, I I I do one section and it's called three sixty and three. And remember how I said about talking about failures, right? Mm-hmm. Three sixty and three is the record for the worst season in the history of the Canadian Hockey League, and that was the year that I was uh, uh, running the London Knights. I, I my family owned them, and I ran them, and, and we had a season from hell. Three sixty and three. You want to learn about marketing? Market that. And the reason why I tell this story is because I want other builders to have the courage to try something different. You can get it done. It really, mm-hmm. other than death. Other than death, it can't get any worse than that. Right. You survive right. that. You survive that and know how to come out the other side, then you, you'll be fine. Right. So when builders are like, oh, I'm afraid to try that. Really? Why? You can do it. Yeah. I think that there's a, you know, there's a long history of builders being very conservative. And, you know, rightly so when you're doing, when you are putting out a huge amount of money in bridge financing and taking yeah. this big load with you no know, spec um, lots or whatever you're doing, it's a big investment, and you you know your bottom line is not that juicy. No. So any change or rearrange is hard to take, and that's we've always come at it that from the, the technical side is okay. So make baby steps and incremental changes yeah. to what you do so that you don't have this massive learning curve. But I think we have constantly fallen down in the, in the marketing part of it in terms of how are you, what is it people want from their house. Yeah. And how are you going to point them to, you know, energy efficiency is not what people care about. No, they want health and safety. They want and health comfort. and safety and comfort. So let's yeah. talk about those things and talk yeah. about how, you know, for East Coasters, it's going to become how resilient is your house. You can yeah. stay in it for 36 hours and it will go down 10 degrees. Yeah. You're safe. Yeah. You know, we have... um we we live like I you know with the septic field we obviously are um, site built or site based services we have a sub panel that services our well and our HRV and our freezer and some lights so that we 
and we and we have a, a portable induction cooktop. So we we're safe. We can invite anybody in to sleep on the floor and stay safe, and we can feed them in house you know house them use wa- and use water. Yeah. Um, but this house is too old to be really comfortable. Uh, it'll hold itself at about minus maybe 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 minus eight for 24 hours, but that's not enough. No, because you can still have pipes freeze at that time. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, I'm always sort of using my, my sort of generic, it's not necessarily, not, not really a track built house, but it's not very, you know, it's not super insulated or anything. So it's a good example of here's all the experiments that I can do on this. It's a typical home. Yeah. 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 Well, I'm always in the same boat as everybody else. Looking for that grant, looking for that no interest loan. When is it coming? Come on, come on, come on, come on. <laughs> so when, when I'm advising other builders, the, the, the biggest thing that I like to get across to folks, besides obviously the four principles and that sort of thing, is how to attack it. And to me, it's okay. Let's say that you're a builder and you want to get to net zero. Draw a line in time, a reasonable line in time. Mm-hmm to where you think you can get to net zero and then come halfway back and be the energy star by then and then come halfway back and that's your first discovery home. So really a four-year cycle is a very good timeline to ramp up to net zero because even if you read the book and do all the courses and go talk to Gord Cook and everybody else under the sun, it is a big ramp up. There's yeah. there's a lot of difference between a co-built home and what a net zero home does. And if you get it wrong, your warranty department's going to get creamed. So we, yeah. we want to make sure that builders have the opportunity to step into it. Discovery homes are really important. They help you to get your whole team on board with the progress and the direction that you're going in. And that, that messaging is incredibly important from the building inspector to the guy in, in the field that's, you know, really, I've got to do window flashing on that detail. Yeah, mm-hmm. they got to they got to know how to produce it. Yeah. So we, we yeah. have to think in terms of making it easy for folks in the field to be able to do right yeah. in order to have yeah. success. Yeah, and that's definitely what we're, you know, the Blue House Energy and the, the training that we're working on is all about the why. And that's, yeah. you know, when uh, when I first, we, uh, several years ago, and I first went to spring camp, and I was very excited about my first time being there, and and he got up and said something about unintended consequences and the why behind building science. I was like, here are my people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We don't We don't talk enough about why, and we don't talk enough about our failures. Mm-hmm. And so I'm like, yeah, I don't care. I'll tell you. And I'll tell you what I've done that works. And you want to replicate it? Great. But you know what? Nine times out of 10, I'll get something back from that person that helps me to improve too. Yeah. Always. Always. So, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a great opportunity. And, and, uh, you know, having a podcast like this is fantastic, uh, to get the message out. And I, and I hope more people will really tune in, uh, to what the messaging is, which is, Stop thinking about energy. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's important, but we can get there if we look at other things instead. Yeah, so yeah. and principles. I think we, yeah, and it definitely the the marketing and stuff that I'm doing is always around make your home comfortable, improve your health. Without you know, we can't guarantee, but here's what we can do to make this shell be safe and comfortable yeah. for you. Um, and oh, and by the way, by doing these things, you're also going to get the benefit of lower energy costs. Yeah. It's yeah. just a sideline. It really like it's just it's a sidebar. So good. Let's move on and do all sorts of excellent things. And uh, hopefully we can see each other soon and we can cook for each other. Thanks so much, Doug. This has been great. Beautiful. Thanks for having me. Okay, folks, that's it for season one of This Must Be the Place. We'll be starting season two. We'll be up and at them on January 6th. So we'll talk to you then.
Thanks. Thank you for tuning in. This episode was produced by Blue House Energy, Podcast Atlantic, and Tanya Media. Subscribe and don't miss an episode. Leave a comment. We'd love to hear from you. Until next time. Thank you.